Hello and welcome to the Moonshots podcast. It's a huge, a ginormous and a special edition. It's episode 29. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and as always, I'm joined by the man himself, Mr. Chad Owen from Brooklyn, New York. I can't contain my excitement tonight, Mike, because we have a very special guest with us today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce our third co-host for today's show? Well, um, I am I am fired up because we have the Commonwealth Games here in in Australia. Australia is winning tons of medals, and if there was ever a gold winning Aussie startup entrepreneur and innovator, it has to be the man himself, Mister Brendan Yell. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, great to be here. Well, we we uh, you and I are, are waving our Aussie flags at the moment. How do you think, Brendan? We can transform. You know our Brooklyn hipster. Uh, how can we? How can we make Chad a little Australian? What would he need? Would he? Would he need? You know, a glass of beer while he watches the Commonwealth Games. Would he? Would he need an Akubra hat? How do we transform him to to celebrate our Aussie special edition? Oh, look! I think he would uh, need a glass of beer, washing down some uh, Vegemite on toast. I think would go great. Oh, there you go. Uh, now, now I'm asking uh, uh, a rather controversial question here. Chad, have you ever tried this great Australian delicacy, Vegemite? I have, and I can see why people like it. I'll, okay. I'll give it that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think, uh, Yelly, that, that's uh, a firm no <laughs> from Chad. I'm not sure we've sold him on that. What other Australian food delicacies could we maybe win him over with, uh, Brendan? Well, I don't know. I mean, the Vegemite one's an interesting one. I like it myself, but I do understand why people taste it and think it tastes like alien mucus. So, fully get that. Um, I don't know. We got some, maybe some kangaroo steaks. Uh, we do love our kangaroos down here, and they are on the go. coins and the Australian notes. But we do actually eat them too. They're kind of tasty. Yeah. Well, we could could obviously go. I've I've had crocodile pizza at an Australian restaurant. Um, what about barramundi? Maybe we need to go a little bit upper class and get the get the barramundi fish on the grill going for for Chad. What do you think? Oh, look, a lovely fillet of barramundi is always super tasty. I can highly recommend it. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty good to me. And now. I am a former rugby player and rugby fan, so I feel like that gives me like a few points. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, rugby yeah. is, a bit, is a bit too tough for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, had, I played I played fullback, so I was like as far away from the action in the scrum as possible. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think you lost your points again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, now listen. I have, I have a good foot. I'll say that much. I could. I could. I could make those kicks. There you go. Very good. Now, um, putting your best foot forward is definitely what the focus of this show is going to be. Chad, why don't you introduce for us uh, the entrepreneur, the innovator that we're going to study, we're going to learn from today? Yeah. So, I think it's only fitting having two Aussies uh, co-host the show today to profile an Australian entrepreneur. And we have a fantastic female co-founder of a pretty pretty successful tech company, Melanie Perkins from Canva. And her story and her co-founder's story, uh, she co-founded uh, her, her first company with, with a guy named Cliff Obrecht. I think it's a really great origin story and just lesson in how to bootstrap a company to success, kind of in spite of yourself and, 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 and struggles along the way. 
Yeah, she she brings, um, without doubt, a big theme we've seen on the show, tenacity, really focused on customer problems, and she's got this abundant positivity about her. She's she's really special. I know, Brendan, you've spent some time, you were interviewing one of her co-founders just last week when we were together. You're so familiar with this company. What's your sense, what's your views on, on, on Melanie and, and, and what she does best? Well, I think when someone is trying to solve a very large problem, uh, they can get a little focused on how do I solve this big problem? And what I love about Melanie is her ability to actually d- divide that down into a series of smaller problems. And every day, she's just going to work and solving the smaller problems, but with the bigger goal uh, at mind. Yeah. And um, she's what I think a great example in is somebody who has been pretty fearless in seeing their, their dreams come true. So, something that started in her mum's lounge room uh, many, many years ago, as a different company, in fact, has now reached 10 million active users. Literally more than 400 designs have been used on their graphical platform. And I think what makes the timing of this show so special is that they recently raised actually a small amount of capital, but it did take their total valuation to over $1 billion, which means that they are in the unicorn club and they are the second startup from Australia who's made that that list and all from uh, a young lady who has just uh, overcome a ton of challenges. So it's a remarkable story of determination, isn't it? Yeah, look, not only did Melanie come from the relatively small country of Australia, she came from the city of Perth. Now, Perth would be Australia's, I think, fifth largest city. So, it's uh, only got a population of about uh, 1.8 million. It's reasonably small. And to do that from a... And Perth is way over on the west coast of Australia. Like, There's not much over there, not many people. So, um, I'll just add that to the mix that she's done that from really a very, very small place. Yeah. Now, now talking about Canva, this graphical tool that helps you make, you know, social media posts, presentations. Uh, Chad, have you had a chance to see Canva in action? It's it's sort of a, a tool that could easily replace the likes of Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop, maybe even Microsoft PowerPoint. What when you when you hear about tools like this, are you excited? Do you think there's room for it? And and what are you, what's your feeling about a, a product like Canva? My first exposure was essentially getting lost in the product for about two hours. I mean, it's that engaging and cool and interesting. I think precisely because it sits at this intersection of a lot of entrenched older products and it just reimagines it and it's all in a browser, which I think, you know, no other company has, has done to date, you know, put all of these features into a product that is is completely inside the browser, which to me is, you know, why it is so highly valued, what, you know, why it is set up for success. Yeah. I mean, that's where the really big disruption came. Uh, we, we were finally free of these massive gigabyte installs from Adobe and we could get a very lightweight product that could quickly produce content for a social era. And I feel that sets us up, Chad, to, to really kind of take our first dive into the clips. What have we got to lead things off? Oh, just uh, a, a nice little intro here to the Canva story and, and Melanie's story. So here we are hearing about the beginnings of Canva. 
A young Sydney woman has achieved what millions only dream of. She has turned her idea for a web-based design company into a billion-dollar business. Based in Surrey Hills, the company Canva ran a loss last year. But it is now a global player with big backers and huge ambitions. Eleanor Quirk went to meet the woman behind the phenomenon. They're the tech companies so valuable they're almost mythical. Unicorn was a term coined a couple of years ago over in Silicon Valley and it means a company that's worth a billion dollars. Now local startup Canva has become just the second Australian company to join the likes of Apple, Google and Uber in the exclusive club dubbed Unicorns. It's the brainchild of Melanie Perkins, who's built Canva up to be one of the world's most successful graphic design sites. We've had a crazy number of designs created, over 300, no, 400 million designs being created now across the globe. One of those happy clients is Yvonne Hills, who credits Canva with her business success. So just being able to get in there, do presentation, proposals, uh, you know, change an image that I want to put on my website... Within an instant, I can get it done. It's been a 10-year journey to get Canva where it is today, one that couldn't have been made possible without investors like Rick Baker, as well as major investor Sequoia Capital and some other big names. We've been very fortunate to have some incredible investors. For example, Lars Rasmussen, who co-founded Google Maps, was one of our earliest investors, um, alongside a few celebrities that you might have heard of, Woody Harrelson and Owen Wilson. But it hasn't been without its hurdles, recording a $3.3 million loss only a year ago. The company's now hot on the heels of Australia's only other unicorn company, Atlassian, whose worth is now estimated at more than $11 billion. Yeah, so what's so interesting, they're, they're just launching, launching into the stage right now and everyone's hearing about them. But, but Brendan, what's interesting, this has been a 10-year journey for Melanie and the Canva team, hasn't it? Yeah, it's another one of those um, overnight successes. You know, look, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the term unicorn. I think a lot of startup founders get uh, sort of, they talk about it and they're kind of obsessed by it. But what it does do for Canva and it was mentioned in that clip, is it does give them a lot of attention and does put them on the world stage. And, you know, I was in Singapore last week and people were like, oh, you're from Australia. Do you know the guys from Canvas? So it definitely has um, given them a, a lot of uh, exposure. Do you, do you feel that um, a lot of innovators or, or young entrepreneurs, uh, say, who are starting on their journey, do, how many people do you really think are prepared uh, for a 10-year marathon? You know, if you look at all of the great successes, I mean, I think Instagram's the only real ex exception where it was a very quick exit. Most, you know, even just getting to the hundred million dollar uh, point uh, has been, you know, eight to ten year journey. If you look at all the VC funds, they all run generally on ten year cycles. So, you know, I think people watch movies like The Social Network or they hear the Instagram story and they just think, oh, I can just do this. I have this great idea that's so unique. Um, but it's uh, it's a long journey and it's also a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster you know, month to month, week to week, some days even hour to hour. And it's, uh, it's a roller coaster both financially and also emotionally. Yeah, the, the most interesting part of this story for me is the beginning and how Melanie started a company that you can see the, the seed of the idea of Canva, but it really was a much uh, kind of simpler and more niched sort of company. But here is the story of the, the founding and beginnings of Fusion Book, hers and her co-founder Cliff's first startup venture. When I was teaching um, graphic design programs, I would 
write a lot of instruction manuals on how to use the programs and you'd have so many steps. So it's like step one, click this button, step two, click this button, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for like 22 steps to do one simple action. And that just seemed completely insane. Why do people have to learn the software that software should learn people? In a more polite way, she was like, this is shit. Like, why, why are these, do these tools still exist? In her head, there was just like, it was just super obvious. There's got to be a better way of doing this. Like, I can be the person that can do this. In the very early stages, we had like eight different concepts of different ways people could communicate their ideas, whether it's like through photo books or through all sorts of different other things. It was very sort of conceptual and I really didn't think it would go anywhere. But then Mel started getting really serious and like drawing up like product plans and doing real work behind it. And I was sort of like, yeah, 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 I'll see where this goes. Hello, so today is the 11th of July and this is our Minute Wednesday. We always go very quickly from like, this is an idea to this is the thing that's going to happen. And we are in a fun position at the moment. We're actually starting to really get a lot of traction. So rather than trying to take on the entire world of design, we decided to take on school yearbooks in Australia. Fusion Books was an online system that made it easy for school teachers to create yearbooks. We had our entire family sitting there stuffing envelopes to send to every single school in Australia. We had, like, my mum would be, like, licking the stickers and his dad would be sealing the envelopes and we'd have someone folding them. I didn't want to just send these books out to schools that weren't any chance of, like, a lead. I started by calling them up and saying, hey, can I please have the name of the yearbook coordinator? And they'd be like, no. I would end up, like, out-sassing the, the secretaries. That wouldn't be something that I would endorse. I'm very, like the truth. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, yeah, yeah, I've got a book here and I really need to send it to the yearbook coordinator. They've registered for this book, but I don't have a name to address it to. And they'd be like, oh, send it to the office. I'm like, I can't send it to the office. I'll just not send it. I don't really care. It doesn't bother me either way. And she's like, oh, hang on. Let me find out who the, who the, who the, the person is. Um, and I'd get straight through. The three months a year, it'd be like printing around the clock. It was in my mom's living room and so she'd babysit the printers. You'd hear the printers in the background. You're constantly listening. It was like, then you'd be like, I think the printer stopped. Because if the printer stops, then you're losing money. The very first night that we had our new printer, it exploded everywhere. The cartridge hadn't been um, put in correctly, and so our entire room ended up in cartridge ink. Oh, my gosh. Now, they may have been in Perth, uh, Brendan, but they had some New York hustle about them. With that, what I take from that clip is these guys were bringing the family, they were printing in the living room, they were prepared to do anything it took to make this business a success. Yeah, and you know, it's really important, I think, if you're a founder, that you have that that drive uh, and that ability just to, to work. Again, you know, these startups, we look at this glamorous world of startups, but it, as it turns out, it isn't so glamorous. And it's just sometimes just really, really hard work. Yeah, and, and the other thing that strikes me about the start of that clip is I remember in 1994 having Photoshop installed on my Windows Pentium 486 enhanced PC and I have used Photoshop and Illustrator ever since and I faced this problem particularly with the Adobe suite where you launch a new program you're like oh this is too much for me to learn like it's literally going to take weeks of YouTube videos and whatever to learn so I don't use the tool so I faced that same problem but what's really powerful is that Melanie had this well, there's got to be an easier way. Now, Chad, we've seen 
entrepreneurs before, we've seen them having this same aha, like, hang on, this shouldn't be this hard. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, for those of us, you know, above a certain age, you know, we remember the like 1200 page books, you know, that you would spend like $60 for that, you know, of course, came with a little CD on how to learn these programs. Yeah, she was, I'm sure sitting there kind of in a stack of these being like, there's got to be a better and easier way here. I think my favorite kind of solving your own problem story, of course, is Richard Branson in the Caribbean, you know, stuck stuck on an island trying to get to his girlfriend and he just charters a plane, you know, puts up a chalkboard and is like, all right, you know, flights to Puerto Rico, you know, I think it was $39. And uh, the next day he was on the phone to Boeing to, to see about leasing, you know, extra inventory. I, it's, it's so interesting to me that, you know, like you were saying, Brennan, it's like, yeah, it's one of those overnight successes, but if you dig behind the scenes, it, it took 10 years. Yeah, the other unique thing about what they did, and generally with with computer software and with anything, you know, the more you're always between two forces. Is it powerful or is it easy to use? You can make something super powerful, let's say like Adobe Photoshop when we first came across it, but it was not that easy to use. And I'm sure I've got a, uh, you know, Photoshop for dummies book somewhere in the house. Um, (laughs) But then, you know, also you can make something super easy to use, but it's not very powerful or flexible. And somehow Melanie was able to figure out that there must be a, a better way to achieve that and with canva it was basically delivering these high quality templates that were very customizable so that anyone without any design skills could actually make something look fantastic yeah mm-hmm. yeah and, and have the designer community behind it as well to continue to to post the good designs and for everyone that was also my favorite thing when i was exploring the product is you can see everyone else's published work and take the inspiration from that and, and incorporate it in, in, into your own. And I think that the, the where that was so powerful is that not only did she find that problem that we were talking about, it's really that moment when you open up a complex graphical or video or audio piece of software and you're just like, oh my gosh, this looks so hard. And you just have that, that moment of dread. This is going to take me so long even to get the most simple things done. But what I think was really powerful is that uh, by moving to the browser, she was able to really change the game because delivering it all through the browser was a far cry from those those huge CDs and the books you mentioned, <laughs> Chad, those huge books that you needed to get through them. And this is this idea of really solving uh, a problem and being pretty relentless in going out there and solving a real pain point. And and we've got like the Branson-esque thing of being having on your radar where the problems are and challenging the, the status quo there. But then the next thing that Melanie and the Canva team do is they really go about solving this problem and in doing so, I think they create a huge opportunity because Photoshop and Illustrator, it's for the few. It's for the serious graphical designer. But for the rest of us, the other 99% of us, there's this huge problem of wanting to create beautiful things. So let's now take a listen to, to Melanie talking about how they go about solving a problem. 
I think there's a lot more emphasis put on raising capital than there necessarily needs to be. So when you're starting out, it's so important to be solving a problem, having building a product that is a solution for a group of users who really care about it. I think that sometimes if you read the media and you see people with these big flashy numbers, it becomes the goal and raising money becomes the goal as opposed to actually building a company that people is solving a problem that people care about. And so firstly, I don't think that every company should be raising capital and I think for us it was actually a huge advantage not raising capital early on in the piece. So we had five years of um, being organically funded where we got to learn all sorts of things about you know, building a product, internationalising, solving a problem, um, becoming profitable which is a really unheard of thing in Silicon Valley um, and a whole bunch of other things that so if we went straight from being students to you know, bring on a large amount of capital it would have meant that we wouldn't have known exactly how to spend it or how to execute. And also raising money can be a time bomb. So unless your charts are looking like crazy good, um, you don't want to be having to pivot when you are you know, a, you know, building up the headcount, building up the burn. So when you raise capital, you really want to be able to just hit the ground running and start you know, flying literally as a company immediately. So definitely, if you're thinking that raising capital is the first goal of your company, you might want to reassess things. Because ideally, what you'd be able to do is figure out a problem that you really think should be solved in the future. Find customers who passionately believe in this as well. Make sure that's a big group of people. Um, and then make sure that the product that you create is actually solving the problem. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me to hear her kind of speak to the ills or the, uh, the pitfalls of raising capital too early in the process. I think five years in, you know, in Silicon Valley terms is like a lifetime uh, mm. to not raise funds. But uh, her, her metaphor of, you know, funding as a ticking time bomb, I think is a really, really powerful one. And, and one that, that people out there should, should think about because, you know, it could, it could be a double-edged sword. Yeah, look, I just love that clip. It, um, one of the things she talks about there is that it's easy to get put off by reading about somebody else's flashy numbers. I mean, so often mm. you'll you see a startup article and say, you know, two guys in Seattle just raised $100 million in an idea. And you read that and you're like, well, I've got an idea. Like, where's my $100 million? However, when you dig into the story, it's never actually the case. Like, you know, they, you know, there's an option to raise more money or the founding team had like $3 billion eggs. It's like it's never as simple as that. And um, there was a, a great quote or interview that I saw with Paul Hogan, the Australian actor, and he was asked, what is Hollywood like? And he said, it's a really strange place. He said, it's like a mining town, but at any one time, only about 5% of the people are going down the mine and getting the gold. And the other 95% are up on top of the ground talking about who's going down and getting the gold. And I feel that sometimes startup world can be a little bit like that, where we're all talking about who's raising and who's doing what, and we're actually not out there solving a problem. Yeah, that, that's, that's such a great analogy. And, it, it, and it's, I love it. I love it. <laughs> we're too busy talking about who's going down and we're not actually solving customer problems. <laughs> you know, and I would say to startup founders, hey, you know, maybe just unsubscribe from TechCrunch for a month, you know, or just don't get too obsessed. Like what Uber did last week is definitely not having, it has had nothing to do with your IoT startup. So, you know, I think we can spend too much time looking at what others are doing and, and, and which means we're not focused on what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to dig in a little bit on this one, which is 
She's basically framing this idea that capital can be a misunderstood thing and it can be a huge constraint. And I think for our listeners, it's really good we take a moment here to get into what we've seen happen and why actually there's a it's sort of a double-edged sword. So so here's what I would propose. Particularly in my time in San Francisco, what I saw was a lot of raising of capital. Uh, from founders who didn't understand that the the whole premise that someone invests in your company is based upon the fact that they want to put money in and then they want to get money out. Now, the way the money comes out if they invest in your company is through a liquidation moment. It's a moment where you either are bought, you go IPO, you are an acquire-hire. There's all these different models, essentially the selling of the company or a part of the company. Now, in order to sell the company, you need to hit a series of metrics, a series of very measurable things in order to create this liquidation moment. And sometimes those things run contrary to the ambition of a founder. And you get this almighty tension that the investor group uh, we want we want our money and the founders are like, but we need more money to do what we really want to do. And all of a sudden you have this conflict uh, where expectations are no longer aligned. But in the end of the day, those who put the money in often call the shots. Is, has that been what you've seen, Brendan? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think founders that raise early, what they don't realize until they actually take the money is that they've actually added another layer of pressure onto what they're doing. There's enough pressure already to try and get a product out the door, to get find some sort of product market fit or traction. Now they've got a shareholder and a board, you know, potential and board members as well that are hitting on them every month saying, where are you at? What, you know, they're applying a lot of pressure. And it's just another thing that the founder has to worry about. And, you know, I think at that early stage, you know, keeping things as simple as possible uh, is, is a really good thing. And, you know, I think, you know, I went down the path of an IPO many years ago and I realized that I didn't want to do that because I'd started my company because I wanted to be my own boss, not because I wanted $100 million. So, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't go down that path when I started to realize, oh my God, there's all this pressure. I've got lawyers to mm-hmm. answer to and accountants and audits and all these layers. It just, it can be just overwhelming. Now, certain founders can, can cope with that. Um, but, you know, if you do it too early, it can just be really distracting, I think, as well. So, Chad, have you seen startups raise capital at a good time? And, and, and is there something we can maybe learn from Canva from what you're hearing when thinking about raising capital? I think the companies that have best used their capital are the ones that take funding uh, or, you know, take series funding like a series A after they've found some semblance of, of product market fit or, or some real traction. Now, I, I understand that you know, there are some exceptions to, to these kinds of, of rules and generalizations. But for me, it's, it's having found that product market fit. Like, I, I just don't see if you're spending someone else's money to find how to solve your customer's problem, you're, you're doing something wrong, like really wrong. Yeah. <laughs> in, in my mind. So, so I think what you're saying is, um, the best time to raise money seems to be more when it's a growth story rather than a maybe story. Yeah. I, 
I personally think it's the entrepreneur's job to do themselves with their own resources and, and, and capital that they can accrue kind of amongst themselves and family and friends. It, it's their job to find the product market fit. Like, and I think that's what smart VCs do is they, they wait until the company has found that, that product market fit and then they can add in those resources. But the, the market can get frothy. It can, it can be somewhat of a bubble, maybe, and people are just kind of throwing money around willy-nilly. And what we've seen here is like a clear story of bootstrapping, which uh, which really means just using lim- very limited funding, being very scrappy, just making it happen on the smell of an oily rag, has benefited Canva massively. There is obviously the fact that they run a lean business, which is just good practice. And from a more strategic point of view, I'm sure they've not had to dilute their equity as founders as much because they waited so long they had such a good story i mean fusion books uh was a profitable company well before they raised so this sets them up for great success now but chad you've mentioned product market fit and the great news from a founder like melanie at canva we've actually got uh the opportunity to listen to her thoughts about how you actually find product market fit how you make sure that the the thing that you're making serves to Uh, relieve the pains of your customers and to create gains for them. So let's now take a listen to Melanie Perkins talking about product market fit. The best way to position your company for future success, I think, is that if you imagine an industry in 10 or 20 years time, and then you make sure that your company is in the direction of the waves, then you're going to be well positioned. So, and then on the same note, what you want to do is address a customer's problem really succinctly. So there's a certain group of people that really have this problem and if you can address that as your first pot of call, that means that you're going to have a ready market. So rather than just trying to think of something out of under the sun, there's like you know, a certain crossroads, something that's going to inevitably happen. So for example, when I was thinking about the world of design, it became very apparent that it was going to be online, like everything was moving online, it was not even something that you could contest, I think. And then everything is going to become collaborative, people are working together in when they're trying to design a project or a product, um, and so they actually need to have that friction removed. So if you can kind of see, get along you know, some really important trends and um, waves, it means you're going to be well positioned going forward. The, the key for me about product market fit is to use a tool called the Value Proposition Canvas, which is a, which is a tool that's out of the, the Lean Canvas. And it makes you sit down and say, what are the pains that my customer experiences? What are the gains they're looking for? And can I answer those? And this is traditionally where we find the real discussion about whether you've got a thriving, huge opportunity or whether you're sort of solving, sometimes the classic thing is solving a problem that's too small, uh, solving a problem that people don't care about enough, or just solving a problem that people will just not pay for. So the, the great opportunity uh, that we can take from this is that it's all about it's all about understanding the pains and gains of your customers and and meeting those and the key to meeting those is what we call validation don't just assume that you are meeting the needs of your customer serving their pains and gains but you actually have to validate it 
and and Chad, you know my favorite one. It's prototyping, right? Mm-hmm. You know, get in there and actually create the experience face-to-face with the customer and see how they use it, see how they actually explore uh, and go through the product. And actually, this is the greatest source of validation. Obviously, you can use surveys and you can look at metrics. But once you have that, you can then position it on what Melanie was really talking about is tailwinds. She saw a huge migration to online and um, she was like, well, hang on. I have a feeling here that, that this is, um, this is going to be huge. And we certainly know at the time Adobe wasn't thinking about doing it. They've since, uh, you know, uh, started a bit of a catch up game, uh, with, uh, our friends at Canva. But I really, really like the idea. You solve the problem. You meet the pains and the gains of your customer and position within these tailwinds of things that are coming down the track. This to me is a great learning on a, how Canva has now got itself on a huge wave of opportunity. So, 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 Chad, when you think about uh, product market fit, it sounds like there's a few learnings there. Do you think you've got now uh, a couple of key things about when you know you have it? You know, you were asking like, when do you know you've got it? Uh, do you think that's a list, or is there anything else you think you can add to? The, the, the signs of product market fit? I don't know that I have anything personally to add, but this is a question actually that I would love to take into our future episodes uh, as we un, you know, unpack learnings from, from other, other founders. Because it's not something we've, strangely, it's not something we, we've talked much about up until now. Mm. But I think that the story of, of Canva is so interesting in that, of course, it's one of those stories where it's like, yeah, of course, design is moving online. And of course, design is becoming collaborative. It's just she and her team knew that a little before us and committed to making that happen. And then that's why this, you know, she's riding the waves, as she says, mm. Uh, mm. Of, of that of that trend. Yeah. And, and if you actually look at what we've already learned, uh, it's a 10 year story in the making. It's not overnight. They bootstrap like crazy with exploding printer cartridges in their lounge rooms. Uh, it was a family affair. She was highly focused on solving a problem and she got this product market fit. She got uh, momentum. She rode the tailwinds and they were already, and it was very nice that they were serving almost a micro niche of just school yearbooks. Um, but that enabled them to go so deep now that they can just expand with all that learning into multiple, multiple different practices. I know they've got, they're covering use cases around weddings, corporate presentations, whatever visual merchandise you might need there. They seem to, they seem to have an answer. So what a, what an action packed first half of the show. And um, it's important to remember, we've got a lot of other things coming and in particular, how they build a team, how they manage talent at Canva and some of the big future opportunities for them down the track. But um, before we get into all of that, I feel that, Chad, you, you've, you've got a little bit of a, a, a documentary that you want to chat about. So why don't, you, uh, why don't you set up, instead of a book recommendation, we've got an innovation documentary from Chad. Yeah, some... Really awesome filmmakers from Portland actually made a documentary called The New Hustle. 
and it profiles three Australian companies. So for all you Australian listeners, this is a much a must watch for all of you. They profile, of course, Canva uh, and Melanie Perkins' story, but also two other companies uh, that I hadn't been familiar with. Vino Mofo, that uh, is, I'm guessing, probably the largest or one of the largest online uh, wine retailers in the region. And then Safety Culture, an interesting company that is harnessing the the power of digital checklists to just make uh, work uh, safer and better uh, across, I think it's, you know, at least 10 or 20 million teams all across the globe. And it was just fascinating for me to hear both a uniquely Australian perspective, but also learn how that's, it, it's not unique. You know, it's just, Aust- you know, Australian entrepreneurs have the same problems and face the strength, the same struggles that, that we all do. Um, but there's some really interesting, it's in one of the clips, the, the fusion books clip came from, from that documentary. Um, so you get some really interesting and personal stories, uh, from the, from the documentary. And so while I wasn't familiar with these companies, I'm sure that, that you, Mike or, or Brendan have at least heard of these companies. Yeah. Well, we, we, we should let Brendan do this because, you know, a little bit of background on Brendan, uh, not only does he, run all of the community development across Asia Pacific for SendGrid. He's also run one of the biggest accelerators, uh, the Qantas Avro Accelerator. He's uh, the Sydney director of Startup Grind. He's a mentor at Murudi. I mean, this guy was even at CompuServe. Wait for this, Chad. 1991, Brendan was there. So uh, if anyone knows the startup scene here in Australia... Is definitely Brendan. So uh, I think, Brendan, you're rather familiar with these guys. Yeah. So um, the CEO uh, and co-founder of VinoMofo, uh, Andre, was my uh, best friend going through high school. Uh, and I spent a lot of time um, watching some of his fabulous failures, um, watching then the pain that that did, that, 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 that bestowed on his wife and family. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, now, you know, they, they, they just, they honestly, they just kept changing it until they finally hit something that worked. So uh, I think probably one of the most interesting parts of this documentary is that it, it actually interviews some of the, the partners uh, of mm-hmm. the founders and just what the family goes through when they have to ride this, you know, this roller coaster journey of a startup. Uh, Safety Culture, another great Australian success, came out of the tiny town of Townsville in far north Queensland. So, you know, hey, do you think you can do a a startup from anywhere? I think um, Safety Culture probably proves that you can. So uh, a great documentary, not too long. Not too long. I can highly recommend it. Fantastic. I mean, it's so great to see, Chab, that whether we're in Europe, whether we're in San Fran or New York or Sydney, Australia, there's this whole movement of people who've now got tools to make their dreams come true, to go out, solve customer problems. It's a super exciting time. And we've got five more lessons to come from Melanie Perkins. Now we're going to pivot across more into how they build teams, how they recruit talent, how they do a whole bunch of stuff. So there's plenty more to come for everybody listening. And I want to remind everyone, if you want to get more info on this particular show or any of the others, just go to moonshots.io and you'll find all the information in the world. So you can always go there. It's like a repository of all the goodies. But now it's time to to throw ourselves 
into this uh, second uh, installment of the show. What's next for us, uh, Chad, as we continue into a journey on Canva and Melanie Perkins? One of the more interesting stories from the documentary, The New Hustle, was her early struggles to build a product team and a, and a tech team. She and her, her co-founders found, you know, hey, we can pay Indian developers one-fifth or one-sixth, you know, what we're paying developers here. We can get five times as much work done. And what happened was they ended up with a front end that looked kind of pretty, but the back end was so broken that they literally took screenshots of the yearbooks that their, their customers had created and recreated it in Photoshop because their back end of the product was so broken. And so this is it, kind of a lesson of a hard lesson learned about finding the right talent. But here's actually uh, a clip from Melanie in her own words talking about finding talent. And he said that if I could find a technical team and co-founder, he'd be happy to invest. And so that set off this crazy whirlwind of learning about entrepreneurship and startups and venture capital. Because even though we'd had a company for a few years, we'd never heard about startups. And so everything was like just another being submerged into another whole world. So I ended up spending three months there, meeting a whole bunch of people, learning and reading as much as I possibly could. And um, during that time, actually was introduced to Lars Rasmussen, who founded Google Maps and Google Wave. And he um, has been absolutely instrumental for us because he said, um, it was, didn't seem instrumental at the time, it was very annoying because he kept rejecting all the people that I brought to him to be um, on our technical team. Um, and that went on for a full year before we found the right people. But in the end, we've ended up with the most amazing technical team. And it was because of that slightly frustrating experience that it turned out so well, I think we've got the most amazing team here now. We, so when we're hiring our team members, Firstly, we have an extremely high technical bar because we need the best of the best working on our product because it such, has such big reach. Like we've now got 4 million users who've created over 30 million designs, which is completely crazy. And so having the people that can actually realize that dream and vision technically is really important. But then also people need to be passionate and motivated by what we're trying to achieve here. They need to be go-getters. So people that, you know, if there's a barrier, it just means you need to climb over it or under it or however way you need to, to um, go just to get through it. Um, it's really important that people are not the sort of person that wants to sit back and let things happen because if you do that, things never happen. So it's really important that people are motivated and determined and passionate. Mm, finding talent at one of the all-time greatest challenges, not only for startups. I have to say all the Fortune 500 companies I work for are, you know, looking at digitization and innovation thinking, oh, my gosh, I mean, we face a huge talent deficit in those areas. So I think it's not only startups that face it, but I think all companies, particularly in such times of great change. Uh, Brendan, I, I want to ask you, where do you see uh, the talent challenge for the companies that you've met, the companies you've been part of? Where Where is it getting, where's the greatest talent challenge? I mean, you often hear the technical founder one that Melanie spoke to. That's often one. But what else do you see as being the great talent challenges? And what do you see the ones that do it well? What are they doing? What can we learn? Well, 
I mean, the, the, the first problem that Melanie talks about there is that founder team. And I think that obviously has to be right from the very beginning. Um, and I imagine that when Cliff and Melanie met with Cameron, um, who became their CTO and is now their chief product officer and third co-founder, they would have had to really sell him on the vision in a similar way that they sell to customers. Mm. So they would have had to be able to communicate very succinctly where they were going, what their big goal was, and how they were going to do it. In a, again, in a similar way that they do to investors. So I think for Canva, they got that founding team right. I mean, Cameron, he'd worked with Laz Rasmussen on, on Google Wave. I assume that was where the connection came from. Google Wave, obviously, this mythical kind of Google product sort of slack of the future that didn't quite take off. But Cameron was very technically sound, more of a front-end developer than a back-end developer. But on weekends, he used to do designs and like sell them at the markets and sell them online. So we had this great thing where he had this great sort of user interface skill was his day job, but on the weekends, he loved playing with designs. So he had that great interest in the product as well, which made him a perfect fit for the team. You know, I uh, when I founded shopfree.com, I had a co-founder that lasted about a week. And the, what I did was I hired someone exactly like me. You know, if you go to a barbecue, that's, you know, we want to invite someone to a barbecue, sure, invite some people like yourself. If you want to start a company, invite people that have the opposite or complementary skill sets uh, to yourself. And that was where I got it wrong. And I think what Cliff and Melanie and Cameron have in, in their founding team is a really fantastic complementary skill sets. Mm. I would also say, Chad, that um, when you look at the role of finding co-founders, I mean, apart from solving a big problem and being pretty passionate about it, I think finding co-founders has to be one of the most, you know, important things a CEO or founder can have. And I just look at the success of lots of the different entrepreneurs that we've looked at. And there's very, very often there's a team of people around them. Even the mythical Steve Jobs that was revealed on our show had a whole crew of people around him. Some we know, like Jonathan Ive, some we, we still do not know of. But the reality is like finding talent and recruiting a co-founder are essential, aren't they? Yeah, and I don't know that I have heard of anyone that has gotten this right from the beginning. Uh, which is why it's so nice to hear the failure that that Melanie and, and Cliff had. But like, it's it's it has a happy ending. They found mm. Cameron, and you know, the product speaks for itself now. But in, I'm even struggling, and I'm sure many of the listeners are are struggling with this right now. Of who who am I best meant to work with? Who am I best meant to manage? Who, you know, there's all, it's so, there's so many different levels to it. Um, I feel like this is something that I personally just uh, struggle with on a daily basis. Mm. And uh, the people that, that fit right into what I do and who can do great work with me, you know, those are people that, you know, I'm never going to get rid of if I, mm. if I don't have to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there, there have been stories where you know maybe I was working with someone for too long and and didn't realize that it was a bad fit right. until until maybe it was a little, you know, it was a little too late. Sounds like Brendan uh, uh, didn't have that challenge. He may have picked uh, somebody. I'm very envious of the oh one week uh, trial <laughs> period. Like I wish, I wish it was that for me. What, what, uh, Brendan? If we think out loud here. Uh, I've got like a little running checklist. Like you, you, you fundamentally want to co-found something. Like I think about co-founding uh, Moonshots with Chad. 
I just like Chad. I like hanging out with Chad. I've worked with Chad for years and years and years. It felt so easy for us to get together. So I think you got to, you don't have to be like besties, but you got to really like the person. You got to like the idea of sitting down and having a coffee and just hanging out with them is a joy. The, the, the idea of going to the pub, having a beer, it's a, it's a, it's a joy. Don't have to be besties, but I think you got to like them. And I think the other thing is, uh, that comes to my mind, and then Brennan, I need you to help me on this. I think absolute clarity on expectations. Where I see co-founders working really well together is that they only like each other. My gosh, are they explicitly clear on their expectations of the entrepreneurial vehicle of the business? Are we trying to get rich? Are we doing it because we love it? Are we doing it because we need to pay the mortgage? It doesn't matter what that is. But the fact that everybody's on the same page, so when things get hard, everybody's still fighting for the same. Yeah, look, and I'll throw another word there that's sort of similar to clarity, uh, which is honesty. I think it's important to be super honest, not only with your co-founder and your founding team, but actually honest with yourself so that you know, you know what, I know I'm really good at this stuff. I'm really good at big picture strategy. But you know what? I'm really bad with the money and the detail. So you know what? I'm going to be really honest with my co-founder and say, Mm. look, I got this bit covered, but I think you could help me out with this bit. You have that attention to detail that perhaps I lack or the other way around. So I think that clarity of of why you're in it, but also that honesty about your own skill sets, I think is is crucial. Otherwise, I, I don't think it can work. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to even expand on that and say, like, honesty and, and candor, just like the willingness to talk about yeah. those things, because in, there's a lot of kind of deception by just simply not saying anything. And, you know, there's a lot of things that can go unsaid in, in a partnership. And so I think that 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 candor is also yeah. also important as well. I, I think um, one of the things we learned in the Amsterdam live show, Chad, was do you remember just um, – I don't remember which of the entrepreneurs it was, but we talked about uh, never uh, skipping the weekly leadership or management meeting because you need time and space just to be open. And uh, management teams often neglect these things because they're too busy for the management meeting. But if you're just not talking, if you're not in the ritual of talking openly and creating space for conversation, this is the beginning of the sort of the, the, the infection because you can't have alignment if you're not talking as co-founders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mike, are we talking about startups here or are we talking about marriages? Like, yeah. you know, it's kind of the same thing. And you often hear founders talking about, hey, it's very similar to a man- marriage. Uh, we've got a job to do. That might be raising kids, but we've got, there's money involved and there's emotional layers. We've got to communicate. We've got to make sure we're on the same page. Like, it's, you know, I think if oh, you yeah. go back and listen to the last 30 seconds of what we're saying, we really could have been talking about marriages. Yeah. And, and so, to give you an idea, my two co-founding partners uh, in Qualitans, the three of us have three conference calls a week with just the three of us talking through different aspects of the of, of the business in an effort to create high synchronization because it's busy. We're on all different continents of the world. We have over 200 staff running around. Like there's a lot going on. And, you know, sometimes you start those calls and go, I wonder what we're going to talk about. And then before you know it, the hour's gone and it feels like there's 10 things that didn't even get talked about, which is still on mm, the list. Absolutely. And then the other thing, guys, is I also spent – 
five years working with this little Australian rock band called In Excess. Now, In Excess were five guys from the northern beaches of Sydney who were just mucking around, playing gigs at their friends' birthday parties. And then they decided, are we going to do this properly or not? And they decided that they wanted to be the biggest band in the world. And they achieved that uh, when, you know, I think it's about 25 years ago now, they played to 100,000 people at Wembley Stadium. Now, hanging out with these guys was super interesting because there was effectively six co-founders in this group. And even though there was three brothers in that band, and you'd never pick them from personality or looks or anything, they all had their different roles. You know, they had the front man, they had the sales guy, they had the creative guy, they had the mediator, they had the larrikin, and they had the guy that just reminded them they were living their dream. They all had these different roles to mm. fill, and somehow they made it work. What a what a great what a great analogy we've taken co-founding a, a, a company to marriage to rock bands. And, and, and frankly, there's another thing around talent and co-founders is that a lot of the success of band is, is formed in the early years when they often live and tour and work together almost, you know, is 24-7. But this creates this essential understanding and connection that will power the band over the future. And that's, again, very similar to great startups where you see founders coming together in a very intense way in those those early years. And and one of the things that's coming back about Melanie is this is a long road. It, it's taken them uh, over 10 years to get to where they are now. They started in her mum's mom's house in Perth, Australia. And what's so important is if you're going to last and be successful over those 10 years, you have to have resilience. And um, Melanie has a lot of wisdom uh, to share around this idea of not giving up. You know, when you face uh, a hurdle, don't give up. And when things go wrong, don't be dejected. Just keep on going. So let's have a listen now to Melanie Perkins from Canva talking about rejection. Being able to start to deal with rejection and failure and that is something that I don't naturally deal with very well because I just keep trying until it works, which I guess is how I deal with rejection and failure. And so I think that you need to somewhat change your model. So a lot of people, if they're rejected once, they'll be like, I shouldn't do that because I was rejected, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't successful. But I think it's really important to realise that rejection is actually just a step towards success. And so, I mean, literally, if you get a piece of paper and you draw a hundred circles, and then every time you're rejected, you draw a cross on one of those circles, and it's not until you get to the hundredth circle that maybe you should change tact. It's like, you just have to keep trying and trying and trying. And sometimes it will take you years to literally get that to that final circle where something um, works. And it's so important because I think that any startup journey is going to take a lot of time and it's going to take a lot of rejections and you know, the world isn't made to people to succeed in startups because the world sort of is going along in its own pace doing its own thing and you're trying to go exactly against the grain against every company that already exists against you know what is the standard traditional path and so it's so important to be able to build up that sense of self-confidence and to realize that rejection is just a part of the journey and that every time you fail it means that you are just getting closer to an eventual yes mm. i love the hundred circles and melanie's going out in search of rejections so that she can she can make mark the x's um again i think that is 
possibly a uniquely entrepreneurial trait. I think that's a, a frame of mind that really only entrepreneurs and, and good entrepreneurs have is the reframe of failure or rejection into, nope, that's a learning. It's on my way to you know, the promised mm. land. Yeah, that resilience just seems essential when when your dreams are big when you're going out in the world with a radical new way of doing something that maybe people don't understand there's resistance from the status quo all of that sort of stuff you i mean rejection is just getting you closer to success do you see uh how do you see young uh founders dealing with this brendan do you see that resilience is something that is is it's by nature, or do you think it's something that they can learn and maybe it's more of a nurture thing as well? Oh, it's a great question. Look, resilience is probably my favorite word in startup world. If I had to like po- put one word on a wall in a co-work space with startups, there I'd be resilience. Mm. And look, not everyone has it these days. You know, particularly the millennials, they're kind of grown up in, you know, a different world where they're, you know, getting medals for participation and everyone's a winner and, hey, you know, you can be whatever you want to be. I mean, I wanted to be a professional golfer when I was a kid and I got to a pretty good level, but I had to actually at a point in time go, you know what, I'm just not good enough to be a professional golfer. When I launched ShopFree in 1999, we'd been going about a month. I felt like it was going well. We're getting about a thousand users signing up a day. And someone went to the contact form and they wrote, I don't know why you're bothering. Shop free sucks. And I was like, wow. And I, I thought I was perhaps a little bit more resilient than the average, perhaps millennial founder that can be a very resilient these days. It really hurt. It really, really hurt. I thought, why would someone go to the effort to tell me my product sucked? And I wrote this long winded reply to a non existent hotmail address. Felt like I got it off my chest, but. You know what? That actually grew another a little layer of resilience, just like mm. a, a coat. And I think it, it happened. It happened again over the years. Um, but it's but it'd be like each time it happened, I put on another coat. And as long as I realized that I still believed in what I was doing, that enough people were liking it and coming back and sending me more nice emails and shop free sucks emails. You know what? I just had to go with that. But um, yeah, resilience. It's a really important thing. Um, it'll it'll get to you sometimes, right? The most resilient founder will occasionally have a moment in the fetal position in the, on the office floor <laughs> when things don't go right. But that's just, that's just the journey of a startup founder. But you know what? Over time, you get more and more resilient and hopefully success and some traction breeds some confidence and, and breeds resilience as well. Gosh, I mean, can, uh, Chad, can you imagine we've we've not had a Brendan uh, um, moment where someone has written to us and told us that the show sucks and that they don't know why you're bothering. But uh, how do you how do you kind of process this idea of resilience? How do you look to turn it around and and use it for yourself and in in your everyday challenges? It's it's hard, yeah, because it can cut deep, like you said, Brendan. It it, it the criticism. Or, or failures, abject failures can really hurt, you know, it can hurt the business financially, you can uh, lose trust of customers. And, you know, I mean, look at what what Facebook's going through right now is Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, testifying to Congress, like, that was a huge breach of trust by him. And my hope is that he doesn't, you know, put on this face to try and make everything seem hunky dory at Facebook. I actually hope that he and and the team really look and see how they can fix the product to to make it better and win back the trust of, of customers. So for, for me, and this is a practice that I've just recently started that 
I picked up actually from Ray Dalio, mm. the, the founder of Bridgewater, you know, the hedge fund. He has this amazing book called Life and Work Principles. But one of his big things is you know, after a failure or a setback, objectively take a look at it and then sort of create a rule for yourself that incorporates that learning that's like, when this happens, I will do this. And it's really just as simple as that. For me, that kind of codifies the learning of the failures so that as entrepreneurs and in startups, we always talk about increasing the rate of learning. I think if we don't document it and write it down, we're, we're not going to kind of keep keep that and, and learn from that. And so that's just something that I've done very recently that I think is helping me you know, build that mm. resiliency muscle to to be better after each and every setback. What about you, Brendan? I mean, you have this insane travel schedule. You have a family. You're involved in so many different activities, adventures. What do you do when you face uh, adversity and, and you're looking to get through it? What are some of the things that you do? Yeah, look, I'm an incredibly reflective person. So I'm always thinking, you know, this week, how did I do? You know, my conf- the conference I attended in Singapore last week, did I do a good job? Did I network well? Did I meet the right people? So I'm always sort of reflective in a very honest way. I'm never very public about it, but just internally, I think I'm always very reflective. I mean, as a startup founder, you know, you have to wear a lot of hats, especially in the early days. You know, some days you're designing an interface and other days you might be looking at some code or you're writing a press release and you you can't be good at all of those things. Now, you know, you're going to have failures, not of the Mark Zuckerberg, you know, recent kind of failure to deal with. And it's interesting to see how he goes because he's had a pretty sort of rosy run to date, but you're going to have small failures. You're going to go, I wrote this press release and it kind of sucked and didn't really, no one, no one ran, ran with it. Or you're going to have those little failures as well. They're not going to be big. Oh my God, my biggest client, we just lost all their data kind of failures but there'll be little ones along the way. And I think it's important to take as much learnings from those little ones um, as you do the big ones. Mm. There seems to be a thing, whether you look at Ray Dalio, and we'll put a link to him uh, in the show notes for all the listeners on moonshots.io, but um, I, I go back to a show we did, Chad, on FedEx, Fred Smith, and he he had a lot of time in the military before he founded uh, FedEx But he talked about you sort of come to grips with a problem or a crisis, you kind of stoically go through it, but then you sort of get over it, put it in a box and move on. And he had a, I think this is a shared thing. You look at Ray Dalio, you look at Fred Smith, it's, it's, it's really about put once you've admitted there's a problem, once you've embraced the problem, it puts you in a position where you can get over it, put it in a box and and the moving on and asking yourself, what have I learned and what would I do different? And I love what you said, Chad. You you talked about developing habits that, that just trigger when you face a challenge, you know, you kick in with a series of things. And I love those those little habits. One of the things that that, that I do, whether it's for resilience or just well-being, is whenever I work outside. Uh, from being inside, I always take three large breaths just to like center myself, you know, like suck it in. And it's just one of these things that I was taught um, in San Francisco as a way of just clearing your mind and getting ready for sort of this this next chapter. I love these sort of practices and it's something that so many great innovators have these little hacks that help them 
transition between challenge and then moving back into going forward and an and opportunity. Yeah, and I think uh, Fred Smith was talking about it in in the frame of learning from history. You know, the the perspective that all this has happened before, uh, either outside my company or inside my company, and what can I learn from that? Which I feel like is a very stoic philosophy. And it's also echoed by by Ray Dalio in his book. Mm. Um, mm. And again, it's it's just it's great for me to hear from all of these founders. But I don't know. I I had a particular affinity for for Melanie and her story because I think we're probably exactly the same age. And you know, I fell so much in love with the product to to hear that that her struggles are very similar and the same as someone like as Fred Smith or Richard Branson tells me, you know, you and I are kind of onto something in, in decoding all of the learnings from these entrepreneurs and innovators that we've been profiling here on the Moonshots podcast. Yeah. And, and I, I wanted to, to call out the fact that we've seen this, this very stoic uh, theme of, you know, the obstacle is the way you know, if, if you're experiencing hardship, then you know you're doing the right thing. And and I'm just so blown away, Brendan, that, that that theme, if you encapsulate it in one word, is resilience. And this is just something that you see as the one word for all startups. How, how do you, um, how do you best advise or coach people when you, when you see people who don't have enough resilience? Uh, what do you do, Brendan? Like, how do you help them? You know, I, I don't come across that as much. Um, look, the people that aren't resilient, the first time they hit a bump, they're kind of gone, right? They just, mm. it's too hard. I couldn't raise any money. That was my problem. You know, like you mm. hear that, right? They they generally don't hang around too long. I do see sometimes the other one, the other way where people sort of confuse resilience with sort of blind, bold stupidity, you know, going off into the darkness when they're, you're like, dude, no one wants mm. this, right? Or no one's prepared to pay for it. Ah. Right? The, the data is telling you it's uh, it doesn't work, right? It's not working and you're paying a hundred bucks for every customer that you're making five bucks from. Like it's, it's not working. So I think it's important for founders not to confuse those two things. Right. Resilience means you dust yourself after you get up, you look for a solution to solve a problem. You don't sort of just sit there and cry and go, it's all too hard. Mm. Um, it's not blindly going into the dark darkness when everyone you know when everything else is telling you that that it's it's not going to work you know so hey look occasionally we get founders they go off in the darkness and they come out the light on the other side and we go wow well done didn't see that coming but you know there's a difference between resilience and and just that that blind bold stupidity yeah and i think if you if if you as as we talked about earlier, you're stubborn on vision, but flexible in the details. The how you get there, right? Um, yeah. This this is 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 a great path, and I think to bring us to our to our last clip of the show, Chad. I think that all that resilience, determination, all that problem solving that Melanie Perkins has showed is setting Canva up for a big future, right? Yeah, I mean they are calling out Microsoft and and PowerPoint. As you know, something that they want to to eliminate or kill or get rid of or make obsolete. So here's here's Mel in in her own words, Melody's plans uh, for Canva versus PowerPoint. 
Um, oh, and one really fun thing that we're going to double down on. We think that uh, Microsoft PowerPoint is so old school and um, it was built before the days of the internet. We're so excited to see what we can do by completely reimagining the way PowerPoint, uh, the way presentations should be done um, and bringing it up to what should be happening today, making it interactive, making it collaborative. For me, the, the fact that PowerPoint was created before the internet and it hasn't been reinvented since is, is kind of a crying shame. But that's why a founder like Melanie and a company like Canva is so exciting and why it's getting so much traction. Yeah. And, and you know what? Who hasn't had an awful PowerPoint experience yet? Once again, she's sensing problems. Uh, she want to make, she wants to make design democratic and something that everyone can do. Uh, not groovy turtleneck wearing uh, dudes. Um, and again, she's one step ahead because you're like, you hear that and you go, oh, like even Google Slides is so much better than PowerPoint, but still not perfect. And the fact that she's already suggesting that this is the next thing, I, I wonder like, Brendan, if you were to reimagine PowerPoint, I mean, what what could there be? Well, I mean, you know, while I like Google Slides over PowerPoint, it still doesn't handle audio at all. Uh, you have to, if you want to drop a video in, it has to be a YouTube video, nothing else. So they're kind of, you know, they've had to play the safe route. And what I love about Canva coming in is they can just, you know, take a, a blank canvas, to use a term, and, and, and just start from the beginning and say, how would you do this if you invented it today? Which to me is the definition of disruption. It's not incremental things. It's like, okay, how would you do this if there was nothing else out there already? How would you do this? And that, for me, is the way the true disruptors think. Yeah, I mean, it almost sets us up for some sort of, uh, you know, kiosk-based, rich media, carousel-like extravaganza that is as free of, you know, the Microsoft templates that we were shackled in our early careers by. Um yeah, just such an exciting company and it's just really great to see that she's brought us some new clarity, I think, Chad, with this whole product marketing fit. I mean, she's really called that out as a key part of their success. But, you know, I got to love all that bootstrapping, that, you know, solving a problem for the customer, relentless in, in, in seeking the right people. Every rejection is, is a, you know, a step towards success. She really had, once again, it's another entrepreneur who, when you dig in there, there are so many lessons for us, right? Yeah. I, I, again, I think that the 10 year bootstrap story is, is my favorite. You know, I've been running my business for 10 years and I feel like just now I'm finally achieving, uh, the success, uh, you know, that I had hoped for so many years ago. And just uh, being encouraged that they knew that if they built a product that people uh, really wanted to use, that they wouldn't have to take funding. And they didn't for five years. And, you know, here they are after 10 years as, as a billion dollar company. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a great, it's a great story. What, what, Brendan, what's got you the most excited about Canva's future? Uh, it was funny because um, I know some friends that have invested in Canva and I questioned the billion-dollar valuation based on revenues recently. Uh, late night over some pizza and red wine and they just kept coming back to me saying, you've got to meet the team. You've got to meet the team. So, you know, getting that founding team right and, you know, 
um, plus, you know, add a good dose of resilience and I think it's easy. <laughs> mm, mm. I think what's really clear is that they are pointing to a future that is they're not looking to Adobe and Microsoft to to acquire them. They look like they're doing the classic, no, we're going solo. You know, when I interviewed Cameron Adams last week in Sydney, I asked him that question mm. uh, and he said, no, everyone's on board for the complete vision. Um, we're not looking to sell out mm-hmm. to an Adobe or Microsoft. Wow. Wow. I have no idea what a Microsoft or Adobe would do with them. I mean, they kind of epitomize the opposite of open and collaborative, which is what Canva is going for. Well, that, that's a very, that's so sharp. I mean, culturally, that's why it would be such a tough proposition. From a publicly listed company point of view, particularly on the Adobe side, they run the very big risk of being the kings of design, brackets, old school professional, and Canva could be the democratizer of video, much like YouTube has done uh, to the television industry. I think, I think this is on the cards. So you could see them thinking about just, I mean, they're obviously, they have their own competitive products, but culturally, will they ever be able to nurture products like that when they do, as you quite rightly said, they come from a totally different world, don't they? Yeah, well, when these acquisitions happen, obviously, innovation tends to stop. Um, but this situation of Canva reminds me a little bit of uh, Yahoo when they rejected the, the uh, sorry, of Facebook, when they rejected the billion-dollar offer from Yahoo. You know, Zap said that mm. quite a few people left at that point in time thinking that was crazy. We should have taken that offer. And he said everyone that was left, they were in for the full vision. And I think maybe Canva feels like they're in a similar position now. Yes, actually, that's right, Chad, isn't it? We heard that when we did the Zuckerberg show. He spoke about that mm-hmm. being one of the one of the toughest moments. Pro- probably he's going through another one of those right now. But that was one of the toughest moments because he said there was a huge, like, uh, uh, talent drain, like tons of people left. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, for for Canva, the the fact that Melanie and the team knew very early on that it was about bringing design to the masses mm. and everything they've done both in the product and how they've you know run the company has has been towards that that aim and that goal yeah yeah so there's there you go so much to learn from bootstrapping right through to just democratizing design it's all there from Melanie Perkins and the Canva team Brendan You've done your first Moonshots podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How was it decoding such a familiar entrepreneur and and company? What was that like for you? Look, it was a heap of fun. I mean, obviously, I am a big fan of Australian startups going to global markets. So to dissect this one was just a a great fun. And uh, thanks for having me, guys. Hopefully, you'll have me again one time in the future. Of of course, we we will. This what is the triggering moment, Chad? Do you think it will be the the third unicorn that we bring uh, Brendan Yell uh, as a return guest? No, no, we'll bring him back sooner than that. But I, I can't let you go, uh, Brendan, without soliciting some suggestions from you on who you think innovators, entrepreneurs, and companies that Mike and I should profile going forward. We've got uh, Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia. Uh, coming up, but um, who else do you think would be uh, useful for us to to unpack and decode and learn from? Uh, look, I think um, 
Oh, there'd be a number of ones out there. To be honest, I'm just I'm quite a big fan of Gary Vaynerchuk. And I know he's mm. a different kind of entrepreneur and founder in his own right, but you know, I think his journey is an interesting one, especially when it comes to resilience. He does have that, obviously, that or New York or New Jersey hustle. I think he's a a, a very interesting character. Um, and yeah, I would see see if we can yeah dissect Gary. That would be fun. Mm. Yeah. Cool. He's not on our He's list, so we'll have to add Thank him. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, a, a big call out to to all our listeners around the world, from Minneapolis to Amsterdam to Bucharest. Uh, we we just love all of your feedback. We love your suggestions. Um, you can get everything you need about the show from Moonshots.io. Obviously. We're uh, slipping into your favorite podcatcher, whether it's on iTunes or one of those other groovy applications on your smartphone. Uh, but remember, you can go check us out on the website. You can grab all our content uh, as well on Facebook. We're sort of omni-channel, as they say, in the groovy marketing world. But we really do need uh, your suggestions, your feedback to keep coming in. And uh, we, we really do look forward to the next couple of shows we're going to look at the the founder of patagonia sounds like we're doing gary vanderchuk uh thanks to to brendan yell so so much uh to look forward to so chad brendan thank you guys so much for another great show our aussie theme show i think it would only be appropriate that as we sign off we uh, put a bit of bread in the toaster get out the vegemite and celebrate all that good entrepreneurial energy coming from down under the land of Australia. So, uh, on that note, uh, Chad, thank you. Did you enjoy the show? Yeah. Is it is it too much for me to say good day, mate? <laughs> mate, I tell you what. If you're not half Romanian, you're definitely half Australian with a good day, mate. <laughs> Yelly. <laughs> So good to finally get you on the show. It's so great to be back in Australia and seeing all the magic that you're doing. Thank you ever so much, mate. Did you, did you have, a, have a bit of a blast? Hey, that's, uh, that was a heap of fun. Hey, and if there are any startup founders that are coming down to Sydney, uh, I'll put some snags on the barbecue for you. There you go. So on that note, I'm going to sign off, get my Vegemite toast going, throw a shrimp on the barbie and have a schooner to you all, our listeners. Thanks very much. That's it from the Moonshots podcast. That's a wrap.